0: Father God, we uh, indeed do thank you for your goodness and your grace to us and how you've shown that to us in Jesus. And that's what we rally around here this morning, God, is your son Christ and all that he means to us and has done for us in being the incarnation of God. And so, Father, as we uh, focus on a little bit of his life and how he influenced this guy named Matthew, we pray that you might give us uh, understanding. More importantly, Lord, may we not be afraid to apply these things to our lives and to uh, to incorporate these things Monday through Saturday in our week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I find that just about everybody likes to know certain things about other people. Everybody likes to know things about other people. I mean, start off a sentence <laughs> with the phrase, Did you hear about? And everybody's going to perk up and strain to listen, right? I mean, try it the next time you're at Jason's Deli or wherever you go. Just say to the person that you're eating with, kind of loudly, say, Did you hear about? And you watch the guy on the next table is going to be going like that. It's true. Everybody responds to the did you hear about thing. We, we all like to know things about other people. And though this obviously can be a bad thing at times as it leads to being too nosy or too gossipy or things like that, when you think about it, Simply the innate desire to know things about other people is not wrong or sinful. It's actually indicative of the fact that God has wired us to be relational beings that take an interest in other people's lives. And so today, if you watch TV, we got shows like A&E Biography and the Biography Channel and the E! Channel with lots of juicy human interest stories, or at least I'm told Why? Because we are a culture that likes to know things about other people. Everybody likes this. It's how we relate. It's how we grow. And so last week, we began a small two-week series here at Scottsdale Bible entitled The Disciples You Don't Know. And what we're simply doing is taking a look at two of whom I would refer to as the unknown disciples, two followers of Jesus, men who left everything that they knew and enjoyed to spend personal time with Jesus and were in a figurative sense shining a light on them. Uh, We're looking at who they are and what they did and what we can learn from them. And so last week we looked at Andrew, this rough, burly fisherman. Remember that? Who was the first disciple to follow Jesus. And then he just spent the rest of his life with humility introducing other people to the Lord. And today I want us to look at Matthew. Matthew. Now, I'm going to let you know right up front, folks. And when it comes to knowing something about Matthew, there is good news and there's bad news. So I'm going to give you the bad news first. The bad news is that there is very little mentioned of him in the New Testament. In fact, check this out. He's only mentioned eight times by name in the New Testament, four times in lists that tell us who the disciples are, repeated lists, and then four times in one story that's repeated three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so all we have about Matthew is this list that he was one of the disciples, one story that tells us about how he came to be a follower of Jesus, and then we obviously know he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But that's all we have. The good news, however, is that this one primary story that we do have about Matthew is jam-packed, full of details and full of meaning and through other extra biblical sources, historical sources outside of the New Testament, we know a lot about the details of Matthew's story, what he did and the people he rubbed shoulders with and even uh, what it would have meant then for him to become a follower of Christ. And so what I want to do in our time remaining this morning is simply take a look at the story in some detail and then in a powerful way, see what it has to say to you and me because I think it says a lot. And the story is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. So if you brought a Bible, this is Scottsdale Bible Church. Open it up right now to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. We're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We've inserted the scripture on the back of your outline and your bulletin. Or you can look up here on the screen behind me and we'll put it up there as well. All right? Now, when you look closely at the story, folks, uh, you will notice that there are basically five parts or aspects to it. A setting, a calling, a party, some critical comments by some sour-faced guests, and then a poignant, witty, if not biting response by Jesus. So first, notice with me the setting. Look at how the story begins in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Stop right there. Two things I want you to notice about this setting that are critical for our understanding of this story. First, notice that it takes place on the outskirts of Capernaum. It's on the outskirts of Capernaum. You say, Jamie, it doesn't say that. It actually does. It says, as Jesus passed on from there. And so the question we need to be asking as people who are digging deep in the Bible is, where's there? Well, if you go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, the beginning of this chapter, it tells us that they were in Capernaum, which is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee there. And so they're just leaving that town. They're on the outskirts of it. And this was a town that Jesus spent a lot of His ministry in. And the most important thing you need to know about this town for our understanding of this story is that this town is what separated two Roman territories at that town. It was separated by the Jordan River and a lake there, and it was Herod Antipas' territory and Philip's territory. In other words, Capernaum was a boundary town. A town right on the border between two Roman states or territories. You'll see why this is important in a minute. So hang on to this and notice a second thing about this setting. And that is that Matthew, the tax collector, had set up shop there, right? Matthew, the tax collector, had set up shop there. And I mentioned earlier that we know a lot about some of the details of the story through historical sources outside of the New Testament. We know a lot about tax collectors at that time. And what you need to know first about tax collectors back then is that they were not a a very liked group. Kind of like today, but even much worse, they were a very despised group of people. Uh, One historian refers to them, and I quote, as a class of despised pariahs. Lucian, who was a famous poet and author, includes tax collectors of that time in his vision of hell and a long line of prostitutes and adulterers. The Jews in the New Testament hated them the most. You see, they felt the Jews did that they only owed God money from the Old Testament tithe system, and so it bothered them. That the Roman government would have them pay taxes, and they especially hated these tax collectors. And so check this out. They barred these tax collectors from being a judge or a witness in criminal proceedings, the Jews did, because they saw them as criminals themselves. And they even barred tax collectors, the Jews did, from worshipping in the temple or synagogue. And so if you were a tax collector living in the first century, you couldn't go to Jewish church. You weren't allowed to go there. You weren't welcome. Generally speaking, most Jews lump these tax collectors with sinners, Gentiles, and harlots. And the reason that this was so, folks, is because the tax system back then was large and vast and a system very open to abuse. You see, the way the Roman tax system worked back then was kind of different from today. They would simply subcontract out the collecting of taxes to these various tax collectors who were self-employed. But check this out. They had the ability to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government with the full weight and authority of the Roman government behind them and then collect as much more as they wanted for their own pay. And you can see that that was a very abusive system. There were actually two types of taxes back then. First was called the Gabi tax. These were the stated, known, regulated tax. Nobody had really a problem with this. There was a land tax, one-tenth of a man's crop of grain. There was an income tax, one percent of a man's income. This was a hard system to abuse because they were pretty regulated. Relatively fair taxes, not a lot of problems here but then and this will interest you there's a second kind of tax in the roman territories back then called a mocus tax these were various and sundry taxes ranging from one and a half to twelve and a half percent of the total value of money or property or goods exchanged and there were all different kinds of these taxes there was an import export tax anything brought in and out of the province there was a purchase tax just like today's modern-day sales tax. There was a bridge tax for crossing a bridge, a harbor tax for entering the harbor, a market tax for setting up shop in the market, a town tax for entering a town that had a wall around it, a road tax for traveling certain roads, a cart tax for using a cart on public roads. I mean, some of you complain about taxes today. Study the Roman tax system you will fall down and call America blessed. You will. And I'm not saying that there aren't some problems with our tax stuff today. I know that's a political debate and all that. But the reality is is that when you compare what they had to deal with back then to many other tax systems, this thing was abusive. And it was very easy to abuse this system. As I mentioned earlier, custom offices or tax collectors could uh, stop anyone anywhere. They could demand to see their goods that they were carrying. They could even strip-search anybody except for married women. They could raise the rate of taxes, because they had the ability to do that, right on the spot to impossible rates, and then even lend people with interest the money to pay these taxes. I mean, it was just an abusive system. And so as you can imagine, people came to regard these men as criminals. And many of them were and a huge battle existed between them and the average person to try to get away with avoiding taxes. And what you need to know is that Matthew, the guy we're looking at today, was a tax collector. And he wasn't that initial kind of tax collector, the Gabi tax collector. He was a MOCUS tax collector, the worst kind. He had set up shop there between Philip's territory and Herod Antipas' territory, right there where the river and lake meet, in other words, to tax people who were going from one territory to the other. So this is our setting. It's on the outskirts of a town that Jesus had been spending much time teaching, preaching, and healing in, and a tax collector of the worst kind, making IRS agents look friendly, setting up shop there for all to see. Now, notice with me what happens next. This is what I label the calling. Look again at verse 9. It says, And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now get this. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, most Bible experts assume that Jesus had to have had some type of previous contact with Matthew, even if from a distance. I mean, it's already established Jesus had been spending a lot of time in Capernaum, right near Matthew's stand there. And so Matthew most likely heard Jesus' teaching and witnessed his miracles and possibly even had some interaction with Jesus. And so at one point, Jesus draws a line in the sand for Matthew, dares him to cross it and says, follow me. And Matthew does. And Luke, interestingly, in his version of this story, adds, and he left everything behind and followed him fascinating Matthew doesn't include that in his own telling of the story but Luke says and by the way our friend Matthew he's not trying to brag left everything behind in following Jesus so what this tells us is that this was a very radical conversion and call that's what you guys need to see what happened that day rocked Capernaum and everybody that was watching about 140 years ago, before any of us were living in, here in America, a, a famous baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday became a Christian. Some of you know your church history, you know that Billy Sunday became a Christian and it kind of rocked the baseball world. They were like, this guy became a Christian and you guys want him? And he went on to become a very famous evangelist back in the early 1900s. Back in 1970, the leading atheist in America, as many of you know, was Madeline Murray O'Hare. In 1980, her son, William J. Murray, became an evangelical Christian. People are like, you gotta be kidding me. The leading atheist son in America just became a Christian? In New York, Nikki Cruz, 30, 40 years ago, was part of a gang, became a Christian. Bob Dylan, during my day, became a Christian. As of late, Stephen Baldwin, one of the Baldwin brothers, has recently declared himself a follower of Christ. I give you these examples because these are big news examples in our day and age of people who have decided to follow Jesus. Matthew, please see this, followed Jesus. And it was a radical conversion, big news in Capernaum that day. Then, though Matthew doesn't tell us why, but Luke does, Matthew throws a big party in light of this newfound faith and calling. Look at verse 10. It says, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And now, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Luke, in his rendition of the story, tells us why Matthew threw this big party. Listen to what Luke says. He says, And Levi, meaning Matthew, gave a big reception for Jesus at his house. In other words, Matthew was so excited about his call and conversion that he decides to throw a big party with Jesus, and this party was at Matthew's house. And I simply want you to notice with me two significant things about this party, very important for our understanding of this story and how it applies to you and me. First, notice the invite list. It says there in verse 10 that many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. So who did Matthew invite? The people that he knew and hung around with. Other tax collectors. Harlots and prostitutes who were associated with tax collectors. Thieves. I mean, the other sinners that Matthew knew. I mean, to put it in our day and language, Matthew invited his barroom friends. He invited all the irreligious people that he knew that would never step inside a church. And he said, you've got to meet this guy, Jesus. I'm telling you, you're going to like him. You're going to like what he has to say about spiritual things. This was the invite list. These are the people eating with the Lord. And as you're picturing that, I hope you can picture this in your mind, notice a second thing about this, and that is that they were eating a meal with Jesus. It's going to be really important for us to understand, a meal with Jesus. It says in verse 10, as Jesus reclined at the table in their house, literally sat at the table with them, eating with them. And some of you are thinking, well, big whip. He had a meal with them. I mean, who cares? People have meals all the time. It it was a big deal in that culture back then. You see, in the Jewish culture that Jesus hung around with back then and that most of his contemporaries were a part of, this formal idea of sitting down at a banquet table with people always envisioned uh, Old Testament meals with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how on some, someday in heaven there was going to be a big banquet and a big feast. And they saw this eating with people as a very holy thing. And so as a result, Gentiles were forbidden to sit at the table with a Jew. Uh, the religious leaders that day, which we're going to get to in a minute, had a rule that you didn't eat if you were a holy person with such lowly, sinful type of people. And so when we see here that it says that Jesus shared a meal with these unclean and undefiled, or these unclean and defiled sinners, it was clearly against the Jewish law and custom at that time. You weren't to dine with people like this. And it's right at this point, right when Jesus begins to party with these cultural undesirables, that the story begins to heat up. Notice with me what happens next in verse 11. I call this the criticism. It says there in verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, do you all know what a Pharisee is? Do you? A Pharisee was very similar to a pastor today. I'm not saying that pastors today are Pharisees, though some it might fit the bill at, but Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, just as pastors and priests are religious leaders today. That's what a Pharisee was. And yet one of the things that the Pharisees did back then that in hindsight, history shows us, was not a good thing, is that they had gone way beyond the bounds of the Old Testament revelation and added to it significantly. It would eventually be called the Mishnah. It came to be written down in about two to 600 A.D. after Christ existed. But at the time of Jesus, this this idea of oral tradition of the Mishnah had already been formed. And let me tell you what the Mishnah is, because this is important for you to see why the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus. The Mishnah was basically this oral tradition in which all the rabbis, hundreds of years over the years, had basically taken the Old Testament law and told people what it really means. In other words, the law, which has some 400 some odd commands in it, they said, well, this command really means this, and this is what you're to do, and they added command upon command upon command so that there were all these rules and regulations by the time that Jesus came on the scene in addition to what you find in the Old Testament of how you really need to live the law. It would be kind of like you and I deciding today to write a corollary book to the New Testament, telling others what it's really saying, and then giving that corollary book, as much weight as we do, the Bible. And in the Mishnah, it says that to be a guest of a sinner disqualified a man from being holy, one who was recognized as pure. The missioner further says that a tax collector would render any house unclean that he entered into, and so please see as one scholar sums up, he says from the point from the Pharisee point of view, Jesus was undoubtedly in the wrong. These Pharisees were clearly shaken, disgusted, and befuddled as to why Jesus would associate with these kind of people. Their logic was simply this: they're unclean. They've made a mess of their lives. And they're going to make a mess of your life, Jesus, by you just associating with them. And in only the way that Jesus could do, He responds to their criticism. Look at verses 12 to 13 of Matthew 9. It says, But when He, Jesus, heard it, He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Folks don't miss what is going on here. But we are right now at the mountaintop of this story because in the form of three powerful, insightful, biting, revealing, life-challenging statements, Jesus pulls no punches in his response to the Pharisees and the scribes. Three things he tells them. He says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That God desires mercy from people, not sacrifice. And then thirdly, Jesus had come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Luke adds to repentance. And in order to best understand this, in our time remaining this morning, I want to share with you three critical truths, three application points that I think Jesus was getting at here that brings this whole story to a head that has everything to do with our lives today. Can I do that? Just in the few minutes we're remaining, let me share with you these application truths and how they apply to us, what Jesus is getting at here and the first life lesson from all of this is simply this, and that is that we all share a common depravity. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us here. We all share a common depravity. Now look again at Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, and Jesus' first response. He says, "...those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick." Now, do we all understand that in this passage here, Jesus is obviously not talking about physical health, but spiritual health? Give me a head nod that you get that, Right? In other words, he's not saying those who are, have a broken arm. or No, he's not on the physical level. He's talking about our souls. He's talking about sickness or health in our souls. And once you get that, the second thing you need to understand about what Jesus means here is that I don't think he's suggesting that there are two types of people, the sick and the healthy, but he's actually suggesting that there's one class of people, all humanity, that are sick, but simply some that know they are sick and some that don't this is really important to see i mean i don't think that jesus was saying here hey you know what you got these pharisees and they're really healthy and i gotta tell you all heaven is waiting to see what they do i gotta tell you these people just are running on all eight cylinders with god i mean god is so proud of them they're doing so well and I, if i could just help the rest of you become like them then we just have one i don't think jesus is saying that do you He's not saying that the Pharisees are healthy. I don't think he's saying anybody is healthy. No, he's saying that we're all sick. We all have a common depravity. It's just that some know, i.e. the tax collectors, and some don't, i.e. the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus was going to go on. He had his harshest word for these pastors of his day. He would go on to call them whitewashed tombs. Is that not revealing? How would you like to be called a whitewashed tomb? I mean, Jesus basically was saying that you look so good on the outside and on the inside, you're dead. You're dead. There's nothing there. There's no spiritual life. Why? Because you don't realize you have a common depravity. You don't realize how sick you are inside. And so this is so key, folks, to know that we're sick, that we're all depraved inside. That Did you know that every human being has a dark, fallen part of themselves that selfishly desires to do their own thing? Have you gotten to that point in admitting that in life yet? <laughs> that even as a follower of Jesus, you're going to see in a minute, that we still struggle with that every day? this idea that I'm just going to do my own thing, I'm going to selfishly look out for myself, I'm not going to care for others, I'm not going to find out what God wants me to do. The Bible calls it our fallen sinful nature, the flesh. What theologians have, de- coined, have coined our depravity. And make no mistake, we all have it. Every one of us. Whether you've been a Christian 70 years here today, or just became one yesterday like our friend Chrissy. Whether you're a religious leader like the Pharisees or me, or whether you're a seeking tax collector like Matthew, we all have it. We all share a common depravity. And the first step in knowing God in any real sense is to get in touch with that depravity and to admit it. Uh, Folks, please hear this. If you don't hear anything else today, we must never forget our depravity. We must never forget what really lives inside of us and why Jesus had to come and die for our sins because it keeps you humble. Paul the Apostle, who probably had more reason to get awfully high on himself than anybody else in all of the Bible, says this in Romans chapter 7. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Gets to the end of the chapter and he says, what a miserable wretch I am. Who's going to save me from this? And then when he's writing to Timothy, he says about his life again, present tense, he says, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, if you only knew Timothy. That's that's the idea, folks. That even though we're becoming more and more like God every day, hopefully as followers of His Son, Jesus, we still have this depravity in us that's not going to be dealt with completely until we get to see God face to face. And folks, if somehow we do not remember that we're all depraved, that we share a common depravity with all, you know what will happen? You'll become self-righteous and legalistic just like the Pharisees. I call it the trap of the Pharisees. People who forget their depravity and become legalistic and self-righteous as followers of God. Doesn't that just stink? I I, I mean, I know Christians like this. I've been there myself at times. Many Christians that are known by those around them as more holier than thou, self-righteous to the core, and it's not a fun person to be around. And many times it's their own attitudes that are to blame. Listen, we're never going to be used by God as He wants us to if we're in this state. We're never going to experience His grace as He wants us to if we don't realize our depravity. We're never going to reach out to those around us, which is going to be our second point here in a minute, if we don't realize the state of our soul. The reality is, is that we're all depraved. And it's really important to remember that. So I had a cool thing happen to me on, um, on Thursday night. I was with our elders. We have great elders in this church, men who, who literally are the spiritual leaders of our church. And once a month we meet for something called soul care. Which we do no business. We don't talk about you or programs or ministries or money or anything like that. We just meet to care for each other's soul in a, in a home in one of our elders' homes, and uh, so we had our meal together. And then the only rule for soul care really is that we share our red dot. And some of you are saying, "What's a red dot?" Have you ever gone to the mall and you look at the map and the red dot? What's the red dot tell you? It's where you are, right? You are here. And, and so with a red dot in our soul care for elders is simply, where are you today? Where are you in your marriage? Where are you with your kids? Where are you in your spiritual life with God? Where are you with your job? Just get honest, and let's all rally around where we each are. And let's confess and pray and do whatever we need to do. And so that night, I was, as you can imagine, sharing my red dot and some things that I've been struggling with lately, because this is a safe group to do that with. And at one point, I just looked up at them, and I, I just said to them, I, I said, guys, do, do you all feel that your soul is in such a mess like mine is? I I said, is it just me or do you guys feel like a real mess much of the time too? I I said, people see us as having it all together. Jamie's a pastor, largest church in Scottsdale. Most of you guys have run very, very successful businesses. You're Christian leaders in the community. I mean, people would look at you and go, oh, if I could just be like them. And I said, and it's not that we haven't achieved some things with the Lord and all that, but do you all feel really a mess still? I gotta tell you, if they looked at me and said no, I would have felt very lonely in that moment. I probably would have gone home. But they didn't. To a man they looked at me and they said, Oh, Jamie, boy, can we relate to that. I would submit to you that those are the men you want leading your church. That men who are humble, they know where they came from. And they know still the state of their soul now. And though God is chipping away at them and making them more the godly men that He wants them to be, because that's obviously true too. They've not forgotten their depravity and that's exactly what jesus is getting at here don't forget your depravity it's the first thing he wants us to know if we're ever going to move on spiritually now there's more so notice the second thing that the story of matthew and jesus teaches us and that is oh i love this one in order to reach the lost we need to hang around the lost let me repeat that most christians don't get this today either in order to reach the lost we must hang around the lost let me ask you a a lead-in kind of rhetorical question Did you know that what happens here to Jesus in Matthew was not an isolated occurrence? I mean, sometimes I think people are tempted to see what happens here with Matthew and they go, oh, wasn't that so nice of Jesus to take time out of his busy schedule and reach out to a thug like Matthew? You know, we kind of see it like a big brother type of thing, right? Right? You know, you go, I think I'll, a, you know, I'll be a big brother to somebody. So once a month, we get with some kid in need and become a big brother. That's a very good thing to do. Or a soup kitchen. You know, once a quarter, I go and pour soup for poor people and you feel good about yourself. And those are all good things to do. But you guys realize that that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not doing His civic duty. No, for Jesus, this was actually a pattern of His life. In fact, this is so revealing. Check out Matthew 11, verse 19. What it says about Jesus. It says that He was a friend... Of tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) Two things you don't want to miss about that. He was a friend of multiple tax collectors and sinners. Didn't that blow you away? So, this Matthew deal wasn't like an isolated thing. This wasn't him doing his monthly duty to some dude in need. This is what he did all the time. And so, read the New Testament Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, leopards, people that were demon-possessed, struggling with emotional problems. I mean, even the disciples He chose wouldn't be hired by most churches today. Amen? They wouldn't. They didn't have resumes. They didn't go to seminary. They knew boo about God. And yet the reality is that Jesus chose them. Why? Common depravity common depravity. They, they knew the state of their soul and other stuff. They were teachable. They were moldable. Jesus knew what he could do with them in three years, what the Holy Spirit could do on the day of Pentecost. I mean, but, but he, who did he choose? Matthew the tax collector? Philip the Greek? I mean, people he chose, again, they wouldn't be getting jobs today in our churches. Please see, folks, this was a pattern for Jesus. It was a lifestyle. It was a mission to hang around those who are at least somewhat in touch with their depravity, and who the most to know than those steeped in the middle of it. The third of the three biting comments that Jesus made here to the Pharisees was simply this. Look up here on the screen. He said, I came to not call the righteous, but sinners. Again, I hope we all know. He's not talking about two types of people here, just one. It's just that one class knows it and the other doesn't. You see, Jesus knew that God loves all people. He knew that God is no respecter of persons and has a passionate desire for all to come to himself. And this mindset of Jesus's affected every relationship he had and how he treated everybody. Jesus knew the Father's love and grace and this colored the way that he saw every human being. And this was Jesus's story, but was to hang out with Those who were most in need, or at least knew of their need, because they were the most ripe and ready to come to faith in God. I remember one of the first times that I I saw this in my uh, very first church when I was a pastor of a smaller church in Detroit. And uh, when I got there, I realized that this church was going to be a real hodgepodge of people. Because it was in the last city block of the city of Detroit, so we reached out to a lot of city folks, and it was in a very poor part of Detroit. Uh, but we also were right on the border to gross point if you know anything about detroit gross points are like the five richest communities in all of michigan and so i thought oh this is going to be a ride and so over the next few years i noticed that we had all different kinds of people that would come into church and i'll never forget one family uh jay and carol and they had five children and jay and carol were your quintessential church going folks They homeschooled their kids. They'd gone to all the Bill Gothard seminars on how to do the right thing. Their girls were dressed in Laura Ashley dresses every Sunday as they came to church. You all can picture it, right? Jay had a really secure job with Ford down in the city, and they had a beautiful house in Gross Point Park there, and they were very much involved in our church. But then you'd see as they walked into church, like, you know, looking all beautiful, then you'd see Tim and Bobby come into church. Bobby was a girl. And Tim and Bobby were married, but that was about the extent of it. I mean, their lives were just a, a mess. That Tim would come in in a torn t-shirt and jeans because he'd been out of work for a long time. And Bobby's dealt with a lot of emotional struggles in her life and all of that. But they'd come in and worship right near Jay and Carol there. And that was our church. I remember one day I uh, called over to Jay and Carol's house and you talked to Carol about some small group leadership stuff because they were small group leaders. And I said, Is your mom there? One of the kids answered. She said, No, my mom's out right now. And, uh, and, and I said, Well, you know when she'll be back? She said, Well, she's, she's out fishing right now and I don't, I don't know when she'll be back. And now, I've got to tell you, I just had a lot of trouble picturing Carol fishing. You know, I mean, I described her to you. You know, Gross Point, Laura Ashley Dress, Bill Gothard. I just thought I just couldn't picture that. So I said to one of the kids, I said, she's out fishing. Like, is that a regular occurrence? She said, no, she just took it up recently. She said, uh, Tim, and she mentioned Tim's last name, like that Tim, um, likes fishing. And mom wanted to minister to him. So she thought the best way to do that was to go fishing with him. I got to tell you, folks, I just laughed in my office there picturing Carol at the end of the pier in Gross Point with a fishing rod in her Laura Ashley dress next to Tim fishing. I just thought, and yet then I thought, but that's just so Jesus. That is so kingdom, is it not? I mean, I could see Carol just ministering to him and talking about the kingdom of God and sharing with her all the Bill Guthrie principles and stuff that she had learned and, and stuff. And I just thought, that is just, that's, that's Jesus. That's what Jesus would have done. That's where Jesus would have been found. I've gotten in trouble for saying this over the years, so I don't know if I'll get in trouble here or not, but I ran this by a few elders. Now you're all thinking, what is he going to say? I I truly believe that if Jesus was here today, you would find him doing aerobics at the health club. He'd be down at ASU and Tempe talking with a lot of college students. He'd be at the Rotary Club having lunch. And then during happy hour, he'd be at the bar talking with a lot of barroom people. He would. I got in a lot of trouble in my first church for saying that. There's a big bar down in, a, not my first church, second church, the first church I senior pastor in London, Ontario. The big bar in town was called the Ride Out Tavern. You'd never see a Christian there for the life here. If you did, nobody would tell. And uh, I said my very second or first Sunday there, I said, you know, if Jesus was here today, he'd be at the Ride Out Tavern right now. He would. And don't get me wrong, I don't think he'd be getting drunk with them, do you? And Jesus didn't do that. He hung around with prostitutes, he did not engage in prostitution. He hung around with tax collectors, he didn't engage in tax collecting. So I'm not suggesting that Jesus would sin with people. He never did that. But the reality is, don't miss this, he hung out with them where they were. He didn't invite them to church, they probably wouldn't have come. He went to where they were and in hanging out with them, he helped them understand the kingdom of God. And i got to tell you, I'm almost afraid to ask this question. But my question to us is, once we get this, is, is this what we do? Uh, one of the tragic things about the evangelical church in America is that we've become so homogenous, what some culture watchers call the holy huddle. Have you guys related to that? The fact that we hang around with only those who are like us. We go to our Bible study. We serve. We, we do all things. And this is good. We're growing in our faith. We're making friendships. We're banding together in little platoons. That's all really important to do. But the reality is, is if that's all you do, and if you never remain in the world that you came out of and love those people and care for them and lead them to, to still waters, then they're never going to find it. And that's why I say that in order to reach lost, you've got to hang around the lost. And you've got to do it on their turf. It's what Jesus did. He set the pattern for us. I love how one of the foremost experts on the New Testament, R.T. France, says it about this very past passage. He says a healer must get his hands dirty. And my question for you today is, are your hands dirty? Or are your hands squeaky clean? Because if they're squeaky clean, then you're probably not following in the footsteps of Jesus. And then one final t- story or truth this story teaches us, and you're going to love this one, and that is that once you do that, we must hang in there with others and introduce them to Jesus. In other words, we must commit to a lifetime of patient mercy with others, and then continually point them to the ultimate source of mercy, Jesus Himself. Look one last time at this text here. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Some of you don't get that. You're like, what's He talking about? Well, I was quoting the Old Testament there. It's actually right out of Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, where the context is, is Israel's is doing all these things according to law, but they miss the big picture of caring for the poor. And so Hosea comes along and says, you know what, God's really glad that you're doing all these sacrificial things, but guess what? He'd like you to have mercy, first and foremost. In fact, he desires mercy more than he does sacrifice. Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's saying, if you Pharisees, if you people would just get that I want you to relationally love people around you, especially the most unlovable, then you'd understand what my heart is about. Give them mercy. Give them grace. Introduce them to the giver of mercy and grace, God Himself. The only problem is is that this takes time. It takes energy. It takes patience. And it takes continual perseverance to hang in there with people, doesn't it? It does. And it gets messy. As Mike Gacchinelli wrote right before he died, a Christian pastor over in California. He says it's messy spirituality. And it's true. I mentioned in my first church that we had a real hodgepodge of people, and we had an incredible ministry in that church to the more undesirables in our culture. And I remember after being there about a year, one of my buddies from seminary called me up and just catching up with me, and he said, how's it going? And I said, oh, dude, i got to tell you. I said, uh, in one sense, it's going awesome because uh, we've attracted a lot of tax collectors and sinners. And I said, and that's who Jesus hung around with, and that's what we're about. And he said, what's the problem? I said, the problem is they don't stop collecting taxes and sinning as quick as you want them to. Amen? They don't. In other words, we all say, oh, it's so wonderful you reach out to them. But you understand that when you reach out to them, as R.T. France says, your hands get dirty. And it can be frustrating. And that's why this last point is so critical. You need to hang in there with others. Introduce them to Jesus over and over and over again. I'm hanging in there with some people that I've been hanging in there with since the day I accepted the Lord in 1981. I'm still waiting, but I'm hanging in there. Why? Because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. I mentioned my first church and how formative that was for me and, and all this stuff. One of the things I realized in my very first pastor is that I have to be very careful as a pastor because all of you want my attention and all of you want to spend time with me throughout the week and I think that's great and all that, but before you know it, I'm doing like 99% of my work with who? They're already convinced. And before you know it, most pastors get very insulated and very isolated from exactly the ministry that Jesus had. And, and we were very cognizant of that in our, in our, as pastors in our, my very first church. And so we always uh, tried to pray and, and see how we could make sure we're involved in our neighborhoods and our communities and all of that. And, uh, and I remember in, in my very first house, it was a small 1,000 square foot home. I wouldn't make it much in my first pastorate. And we were having babies like rabbits, you know, three kids in four years and very overwhelmed at home and, uh, and, and, and dealing with a lot of stuff. And I, I realized I needed an outlet. And uh, you know, I was just doing the church thing all the time and changing diapers and I said to Kim one day, I know we don't have much money, but I would love to buy a project car. Just something to work on, something that I can put my hands into and get some completion on. So her and I went out and looked, and we didn't again we had barely two nickels to rub together, but we had saved up like four or five hundred dollars. And I went out and bought a nineteen seventy-six Fiat Spider convertible. They call a Fiat Spider a poor man's Ferrari. And so I went out and bought this thing and it was the ugliest, most rusted piece of junk you've ever seen. It barely made it home. I mean, what do you get for 500 bucks? But I drove this thing home, I put it in my little two car unheated garage in Detroit, Michigan, and I just worked on it for a year. My wife called it my mistress. I hope you guys can take that in fun. Somebody would call over and they'd say, where's Jamie? He's out in the garage with his mistress. I mean, that's why I kind of got free. And uh, I got out there in, the, in that, and, and I got to a eventual point in restoring this things. I've never done it before, where uh, the mechanical work was very confusing to me. And, uh, and, and I'm not a mechanic, obviously. So I, I had a neighbor down the road named Brad, who I knew was really good. He was a mechanic for a trade. And so I went down one day and I knocked on Brad's door and I, hey, said, Brad, I told him what I did. I said, would you mind helping me with some of the mechanical stuff? And, and I don't know if Brad knew as a pastor because he swore at me right away. And he just said, all right, all right, And he said, yeah, I'll help you. And, and and so about a week later, Brad came down and he looked at the thing and he started swearing again. You know, and I, I thought, well, maybe Brad needs to know that that's not part of my value system or whatever. But he's, you know, he's swearing like a sailor. And I just realized that was Brad, but he was going to help me with his car. And about once a week for the next 10 weeks, Brad came over to my garage and, uh, we worked on this car. I learned how to replace ball joints and tie rods and springs and, and bushings and all this stuff. And, and I learned a bunch of new tools. He brought his tools there and we, we were working on this car together. And as you can imagine, hanging around with Brad, I, I had, I had a vision for his life because this was his second marriage and, uh, I could tell that things were rocky there and, you know, the kids weren't turning out like you really wanted them to. And there's a lot going on in his life. And, and so at one point I decided to try to broach the subject. And I'll never forget the day I broached the subject, he was under the car, which I thought was a good time to broach it. And so he was <laughs> under the car. He's up there talking, you know, and I'm standing up there watching him like workers do. And I was watching him work on my car, and, uh, and, and, and he had just told me about how his kid had gotten out of line and how he would smacked his kid across the face for getting out of line. And so I thought, well, here's my opportunity. I said, well, you know, Brad, I said, um, I said you know, the Bible talks a lot about grace, and how God, as our Father, is a God of grace, and that though He disciplines us at times, He always does it for our good, and that it's a restorative discipline. And, And I'm wondering what happened if you applied maybe a little bit of grace to your son next time he got out of line. I will never forget, Brad just scooted right out from under there. He sat up, and he was ticked. His face was red. And he said, Don't talk to me about grace! He said, my old man hit me when I got out of line, and that was the best thing he ever did for me. Never told me he loved me. He made me a man, and I'm going to make my son a man if it kills me. And then he went back under the car. And I thought, well, Brad doesn't want to talk about grace, I don't think, right now. So we're going to let that one go. But I decided to hang in there with Brad, right? Some people would have said, you know what, he made his own bed, sleep in it. No, I said, I need him to finish my car, so I'm going to hang in there with Brad. So, uh, so I, I, I started to get to know him better and, and, and this is how it works, isn't it? Is that, is that at one point Brad was going through a difficult time. It was about midnight. I think he was a little bit drunk actually. And he had a fight with his wife and he called me at home and, uh, he said, pastor Jamie, you know, um, can I talk to you? I said, no, I'm sleeping. Call me tomorrow. I didn't say that. I said, yes, of course, Brad. I said, let's talk. And we, we talked and, and that was the first time I prayed with him. He said, I'd earned the right. I said, Brad, let's pray. I so said, we need to pray about this, take this to God, that God of grace. Let's take this to him right now. And that happened on multiple occasions with Brad. Eventually, I lost touch with Brad. We finished the Fiat, and I tried to do more with him, but he really wasn't all that interested. And I'd see him around the neighborhood, but, but we lost touch. That was probably around 1994, 1995. I left Detroit in 1999. When I left, my church gave me a really, really, really awesome send-off I don't know if it was because they wanted me to stay or they were so excited I was going, but they sent me this great send-off and had a big party for me. And this is a true story. At that party, I looked up at one point and Brad was walking toward me. And he came up to me. It's a true story. And he said, I just want to let you know I accepted the Lord just recently as my Savior. And he said, uh, it took a long time. He said, but I will never forget that time you spent with me and talking to me about Jesus and the kingdom and he said, um, I just want you to know before you go that I'm there and I've come home to God and uh, I now get His grace. I drove home that night and I said to God, I will never complain to you again. I won't complain about sheep that drive me crazy. I won't complain about my work. To this day, i got to tell you folks, as a follower of Jesus as well as as your pastor, I say quite often to people that on my worst days, and I have them, I drive home and say, God, I'd rather do nothing else. I didn't become a pastor. As a vocation, I became a pastor because there was nothing else I wanted to do. I became a pastor because I couldn't believe that they pay me to full-time talk about Jesus and prepare sermons and deal with other pastors and deal with you. I just thought, uh, what a great calling. Matthew can relate to that too. I think many of you can relate to this. If I don't miss my guess, um, many of you who are followers of Jesus need to hear today that uh, you share a common depravity. And that uh, though you're getting better, you're becoming more like Christ, don't ever forget that depravity. It keeps you humble. I think also, as a church, we need to hear the fact that um, we need to hang around those who are lost. We're a big church. We've got lots of ministries, lots of programs, and we serve like crazy, and that's awesome. We need to um, have a stronger evangelistic fervor in this church. I've been praying for that, that, that we would have a heart that's broken for the lost and that we'd all each individually, not inside these walls, out there, start hanging around the lost. And as you do, hang in there with them. Point them to grace. Point them to Jesus. Show them where where the water has been found that has quenched your thirst. And then hang in there with them. It might take a long time. But God shows up and as C.S. Lewis says, He surprises us with joy. Why don't you pray? Father, I thank You for our time together in the Word. Thank You for the Bible. I thank You that Jesus taught us that there is not one He would reject. That all of us, in many ways, are like Matthew. And that as we understand His grace and come home to Him. Our hearts have found their niche. So, Father, I pray that if there be a Matthew here today um, that needs to know You and come home to You, that they would, that they right there sit, they could know, they could trust You and believe in You right where they sit and that today would be their spiritual birthday. I pray, Lord, for the rest of us that as we can relate to Matthew from our lives, that, God, we never forget our depravity, that we never forget that we need to hang around those who are lost in our culture and that, Lord, we need to to lead them lovingly, patiently to grace to you, to your son, Jesus. So, God, do that in us, we pray. Give us patience. Give us joy. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.